is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. British troops train up Syrian rebels. Is this the start of something bigger? Meanwhile, the Saudis are bombing Yemen, the voice of reason from the vicar of Baghdad. It brings the heightened tension between Shia and Sunni to the surface. Does Argentina really fancy another pop at the Falklands? And Richard III, were you there when they buried him? Britain is sending a training group to Turkey to instruct Syrian opposition forces, according to the Ministry of Defence. I'm joined by military strategist Professor Eric Grove and our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Christopher, what's this all about then? Basically, um, some time ago it was agreed that uh, a coalition of forces, including the Americans and mainly the Americans, would actually try and train to some extent, the uh, some of the rebels. Now, you know, that is the qualification. Two qualifications, that's the difficulty of it. You know, try to train, in other words, train in what? And also, um, which rebels? Because there are so many rebel groups against Assad. Now, what is happening at the moment is that 75 uh, UK trainers will go to Turkey, because you can't train them in Syria. That's asking for trouble. Um, and some of the rebels that have been selected and some of the rebel, rebel commanders that have been accepted, you know, that, that sort of middle management group that can take the voice back uh, to their own men, will be in Turkey, which is a NATO country, an ally, and a safe place to train. But um, the difficulty is going to be is which of the of, of the rebels or the or the resistance fighters or whatever you want to sort of label them, which ones you train and for how long you train. Mm, Eric Grove, can can you shed any light on on how that's worked out? Well, the, we've tried in the past to support the Free Syria Army, which is considered to be, as it were, the goodies. Uh, they are people who were formerly in the Syrian army who turned against Assad. And they, uh, and, and, and they officially believe in some kind of pluralist democratic Syria. However, they have been squeezed on the one side by Assad's forces and on the other side by, as Chris says, a, a, a rather a group of Islamists, of which IS are the nastiest, but there's also the al-Nusra front. And there's yet another group. And the Americans have had problems deciding who they're supporting, because when they... When they bombed, bombed the Islamic State people, they also bombed one of these Islamist groups as well, which they officially classify as a terrorist organisation. Now, the Free Syria Army and their supporters say, we have neglected the middle in the past. If we've supported them, they would have been able to have dealt with the Islamists. On the other hand, the evidence of the past, what actually happened, is that a lot of Free Syria Army have actually gone over to the Islamists because they consider to be the only people seriously in the field against Assad. So, Christopher, the Defence Secretary's made this announcement. It was expected. Uh, do you think this is the thin end of the wedge? Will, will it, is, it, is it going to creep up, do you think? Not this stage of it. And remember what they're training. I mean, they're not training them to be super fighters and, you know, sort of qualify for special forces or anything like that. It's basically how you do battlefield medicine, how you use very crude intelligence and how you get it out to your people, which is particularly important. Uh, basic infantry tactics, which is hard to imagine in some of the situations they're in, but fundamentally to take that middle, middle management group and try and put some order into them. Now, the next stage is reflected in the fact that this is going on in Turkey and not in Syria itself. It ain't boots on the ground, but 
they're quite close. Mm. Let's travel now down to Yemen because rebels in that country, known as Houthis, have in just one year driven the Western-backed government out of power. In the past 48 hours, more than 100 Saudi aircraft have started bombing key points in the hope of stopping the Houthis getting complete control of the country. Uh, this is a proper war going on, is it, Christopher? It is a proper war, in, in, or, or, and it's got the makings of, 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 of a mother regional conflict. Listen, you've got two groups in, in the Yemen. Uh, you've got the, the uh, if you like, the Al-Qaeda, which is in the Arabian Peninsula, which the Americans regard as the most dangerous form of Al-Qaeda. They'd be responsible for bomb-making, uh, putting on planes, etc. The other lot, you've got President Hadi's... Uh, group, and they look after another part of the country. Now, last year, the the airport at Sana, and then the the place itself, which is the capital, was taken over by the Houthis, uh, the Houthis who mm. come from the north. We are now getting this: the Gulf countries, most of the Gulf countries, and probably others, said we cannot tolerate this because that will, this will spread to our own countries. This will carve up the whole Gulf into this radicalization. Mm. And so the, the Saudi Arabia, uh, Arabian Air Force, under its new defense minister, he's only 30, said, right, we will provide the air cover. Uh, and then we'll put in some like 150,000 boots on the ground from all these Gulf countries. Eric Grover, as I understand it, the Houthis were enemies of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda were the Western enemies in Yemen. Now there's a new one. What happens if the, you know, amid all this chaos to the stability of the country and perhaps opportunities for more extremism to take root there? Well, this is this dilemma, you see. I mean, who are our friends and who are our enemies? I mean, the, uh, the Houthis are, 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 are Shias, hence they're backed by Iran. And to some extent, what's happening in Yemen is turning into a bit of a... a a bit of a sort of proxy war, when in the case of the Saudis, not that much proxy, because the Saudis are operating against the Houthis. The Houthis have the support of the Iranians. The same is true in Iraq as well, where we don't know whether we ought to support the Iraqi government because of the Shia militias. I mean, the West is in a very difficult position. It has to walk a tightrope between... Um, between radical Shias and radical Sunnis, and working out who to support and how is a very difficult problem. I don't, I don't envy people making those kinds of decisions. The important thing this is could could, could become a regional conflict, and therefore you'd have the whole of the Middle East, uh, from Syria right down to the uh, in the Gulf of the Indian Ocean. Uh, at war and a big war because other people get involved. Now, next question obviously has to be where's the, where's the UK in this? The United uh, Kingdom, one of the people that are involved in it at the moment is, is, is Bahrain. The United Kingdom is going to have a naval base in, in, in Bahrain. It's got a naval presence in, in Bahrain. And the one country that's not taking part in this is Oman. Now, Oman uh, are, are friends with the Iranians. So the Oman is not, but the Omanis are very, very, very close people to the British. Um, and we've got a defence agreement with them and we've got special forces in there for training. So the United Kingdom can get involved by being in Oman. Navally, it can get involved by being in the Gulf and there's a war British warship in the Gulf at the moment. Right. It does seem the, digger you, the, dirt, the deeper you dig, the dirtier it gets, doesn't it? Um, certainly since 2003, the United Kingdom has indeed put boots on the ground in the Middle East. The most controversial intervention was the last Iraq war. One British priest has been the constant witness to the consequences of that war, and at the moment, Canon Andrew White, known as the Vicar of Baghdad, is in Jerusalem. I spoke to him earlier today and started by asking him what he made of the events in Yemen. Once again... It brings the heightened tension 
between Shia and Sunni to the surface, and therefore between the Iraqi and Iranian community and the rest of the Muslim world. And it's not possible to talk about the Iranian significance without the Iraqi significance. And the fact is, we may have gone into a war to liberate Iraq, but in essence, what we did was to cause an incredible unity between Iraq and Iran. You speaking about Iraq, obviously, as we know you very much as the vicar of Baghdad, but you're in exile, aren't you? You had to leave at the, towards the end of last year. What happened? Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury was increasingly concerned about my safety, and he basically said, you're more useful alive than dead. And I'm afraid I had to agree with him. So a lot of my work is actually helping and supporting the Christians who have escaped from Iraq. And a very considerable number have now fled to places like Jordan. How dangerous did it get for you? You were kidnapped, you were shot at, there were bombs going off outside your church in Baghdad. Presumably you cheated death on more than one occasion. Well, that has been going on for years and years. I've had all those kind of attacks. And there weren't any specific threats against me in the recent months. The concern was about the decline in Iraqi security generally. And though the church is continuing, and the person who was my assistant, Fires, was my church, he is now the vicar of the church, and he is running things there, and I'm concentrating on the care for the refugee community, which is now very considerable. You had 6,500 in your congregation at its height in Baghdad. What's happened to those people? Well, the congregation went down considerably with so many fleeing, but now what we have found is many of those who fled have gone to the north but ended up coming back to Baghdad. So once again, the community has become very large. You've argued that international troops should be on the ground in Iraq. What do you make of today's announcement by the Defence Secretary that military trainers will be used to help train the Syrian so-called moderate opposition? Well, it's very difficult because the people who are the main adversaries in um, Syria and Iraq were once our friends and are now our enemies. So it's a very difficult issue. And just sending in troops to train and advise is great, it is needed, but it's very hard job actually training people. And they're not going to be able to create a, a military force which is on our side just by sending in advising troops. Mm. And just to bring us back to Iraq, you left in November because you were told to, to keep you alive, as it were. Do you want to go back to Iraq? Will you? I have been back since. 
Um, I can't stay there for long periods. And I look forward to the day when I'll be able to be there more regularly than now. But at the moment, my priority in my timing is actually caring for the thousands upon thousands of people who have fled Iraq. That was Canon Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad, speaking to me a little earlier. Sit rep with Still to come, is Putin really trying to rent out his bombers to Argentina? And Richard III laid to rest today, or is he? This is BFBS. Sit rep. From Turkey to the Gulf is chaos, and always the first question to be asked, will there be British boots on the ground? The one person who probably knows the answer is the chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee, Rory Stewart. High on his agenda is his latest report to the Commons. He's been talking to our reporter, James Hurst. This is your third report out this week. Uh, So you're saying there's poor decision-making inside the Ministry of Defence that... There's a fundamental need for a strategic rethink of the nation's position, that we need to rebuild our military capability. It it paints a picture of the government not having any kind of proper grip on defence. The Defence Select Committee, of course, our job is to hold the government accountable, which means that we tend to focus on the things that we think need to be improved, which can make us seem quite negative. In many ways, there are very good things going on. I mean, the government has sorted out a lot of the Ministry of Defence finances. The National Security Council is a big improvement. We can find clearer examples of civilian control. So all of that's good. But you're absolutely right. We still think there's a lot more to be done. And particularly in terms of thinking about threats, thinking about strategy. I think the bit that's been sorted out is, above all, the finances. Procurement seems to be getting better. Decision-making is clearer. But what is the defence committee we really want to get a sense of is that the government can adjust to a new world, to Russia, to Libya, to Yemen, to Iraq, Syria, these kinds of crises which people didn't really anticipate as recently as five years ago. While all the politics is going on, we have to remember there are still operations going on. In the battle against so-called Islamic State, some think IS is getting weaker, Some are suggesting now is the time to grab momentum and rethink putting Western British boots on the ground. Is it time to consider that? Maybe special forces? From our point of view, the big priority in Iraq is making sure that the Iraqi government retakes that territory. Uh, Foreigners are only a means to an end. We're not the solution to this. So what is the solution to this? The solution is making sure that the Iraqi forces that are going into Mosul or Tikrit or Fallujah are not simply Iranian-backed Shia militia, on the one hand, and making sure, on the other hand, that these Sunni tribal groups are actually prepared to support the Baghdad government instead of throwing their weight in behind the Islamic State. Now, for us to play a role in that, that involves a lot of intelligence, a lot of on-the-ground understanding. It may involve some special forces, but it's not primarily about foreigners, the British or the Americans, fighting. This isn't a repeat of the surge of 2007. We tried that in 2007 against a very similar target, And in the end, it wasn't sustainable. So this time round, we've got to make sure that the right Iraqi bits are in place for this thing to be sustainable. The counter-argument to that is there may be a window of momentum that is going against IS at the moment. And if you can build that momentum, that will work in your favour. If you don't build it, then you lose the opportunity. So I I know Iraq reasonably well, and, and many people in the British military will know Iraq very well. 
think we have to be very careful coming to quick decisions on where people lose momentum. We felt people were losing momentum in Fallujah in 2004. We felt they were losing momentum in Basra in 2005. We still don't really know what's happening in Mosul. I don't think anybody knows what's happening in Mosul. So all these talks about who's losing momentum, gaining momentum, the key thing is we've got to have a coordinated strategy. I can't see the strategy yet. I mean, as the Defence Select Committee, we really want to see what is the campaign plan? What's the mission statement? How is this supposed to work? Are we going to go to Mosul first? Are we going to go to Fallujah next? These kind of questions need to be answered before people start talking about any kind of boots on the ground. That was the chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, Rory Stewart, talking to James Hurst. Professor Eric Grove is with us today. What do you think of what you heard? Well, as, as far as it went, it was it was pretty sensible. As far as it went. <laughs> as far as it went. But he, but he didn't mention, and this is probably trespassing on the next section, mm. um, he, is, he is on record as saying that, in fact, we can't operate uh, both aircraft carriers. Well, actually, the plan is to have two, so we can always operate one. And the second one would not be a strike carrier if it, uh, uh, if it was actually being operated. All right. You're, you're right. Uh, we, will, we will come on to okay, it. Fine. Uh, Christopher, what do you think? I thought the, the most important part of this is um, his assessment in the Defence Ministry that finances and procurement, which were uh, embuggerance factors, as the Navy, I think, said sometime uh, in, the, in the Ministry of Defence, were, were in a terrible state when his committee first looked at them. Um, he says they're now cleared. Finances are much better. The way we procure things are much better. What bothers him is that the Ministry of Defence really hasn't got, has to adjust itself, hasn't got an idea of the new world order that we all live in. Now, the problem with that, and the problem with what, the way he's looking at it, is this. The Ministry of Defence does not decide what the new world order is, obviously, nor does it decide what Britain's position in that world and what we want to do about it. The people that decide that is the Foreign Office and Number 10. Mm. And so, really, he ought to be focusing on what they're doing. Then the military can actually say, OK, we'll fix it for you, Gov. Go on, Eric. Sorry, and, and as also he um, he um, admitted himself, uh, it didn't seem that the world would be like it is now five years ago. So if you if if you base your if you base your posture on a set of plans for how you think the future is going to be, it's more than likely it won't be like that. So therefore, you have to build into into your armed forces the maximum amount of flexibility. Okay, well let's move on to the Falklands now because the UK's military deployment in the Falklands is being reassessed. The Defence Secretary said 180 million pounds will be spent over the next 10 years to improve the resilience of Britain's military on the islands. We're joined now by Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded three commando brigades during the Falklands War. Uh, good to speak to you today. Um, just first of all, tell us how big this perceived threat is from Argentina. Are they going to invade the Falklands? I don't think that they will, will do so, unless they think they might get away with it. And if they perceive a weakness, they might well take advantage of it, which is why I welcome what uh, the Defence Secretary said, because it sends a message, look, we're watching you guys, and we're prepared if necessary, and we are indeed doing it, we're reinforcing the Falkland Islands. Uh, what's interesting about this situation is it's actually a replay of 1982, when the government cut defence so drastically that the Argentines thought that Britain would be a pushover, and they invaded the Falkland Islands. Uh, and, and here, I'm glad to say, we seem to be nipping at the, the, mm. the, the thing in the bud at, at about the right time. Christopher, the Defence Secretary uh, did say the military presence on the islands was proportionate to the threat, but then he did say he wanted the two Chinooks back, and he also talked about this uh, warning system, putting money into that. Um, is it the, uh, but no more military personnel? You don't need any more military personnel if you're running, say... 
1,200, and because of the situation at the moment, you can reinforce relatively quickly. You actually don't need that. I mean, the people that are down there um, uh, that are, are, to my mind, are very important is probably the, the squadron of aircraft, because what we've got at the moment is uh, the Russia is offering offering to uh, rent out a squadron of Sukhois, uh, which are basically GRAs, but that's what they're offering to do. And with the the scary politics of Afghanistan, especially uh, in a a doubtful economic situation, just as it was in 82, um, there is the situation that you can think, have we got the defences that could actually sort of sort out a silly, a chance attack, or a mistake happening, and it's the mistakes that you've already got, always got to second-guess. Julian Thompson, do you agree that that's the biggest risk, the mistakes? Well, I think it's that, or a bunch of guys thinking they can get away with it, a sort of a very right-wing group of, of, of people who think what we'll do is we'll do some kind of landing and some kind of demonstration. And, and could they get away with it, do you think? Well, I hope not, and, and of course one of the things is the, the Chinooks, uh, are there in order to move the troops around. So that if there's a landing or reports of a landing or a possible landing in an area that's remote from the from the base at Mount Pleasant, you can move troops there very quickly using the Chinooks, and that's what they're there for. Christopher, um, oil and gas exploration is bound to actually heighten any tensions if and when they strike lucky. Yeah, I mean... The Falklands. Yep, yeah, the Argentinas, if... I mean, if having, you say something like this, they're not going to go to war over those sort of uh, resources. There, but then, you know, and then the next day they decide they might make noises about going to war, and that encourages what Julian was talking about, a bunch of people, you know, the Galtieri's of this world, who were in 1982 were responsible for, for launching the, 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 the intervention in, in the Falklands. The important thing is this. There is a process at the moment of negotiations on what you do about offshore resources, about uh, about co- cooperation between the two countries, uh, with cooperation through third parties. That is not going to go away. Mm. That is easily the sensible thing. But right at the heart of this, you have the Argentina claim that these are the Malvinas, and they're ours, and, and any political difficulty in the country, you get up and you say so, and there's a lot of flag waving, and you've got the other side of it in, in Whitehall with the Foreign Office saying, you know, as long as the, uh, Argent- uh, the, the, um, the, the Falkland Islands wanted to, and want us to be there, then there that we shall be. That could have been a nasty slip of the tongue, couldn't it? Yes, it could be. <laughs> uh, Major General Julian Thompson, um, I mean, you could argue that all of this talk and, and what the Defence Secretary has said this week it actually does, does a favour to the armed forces because it makes people look again before the next Defence Review at the importance of things like aircraft carriers. Well, I quite agree. And what it actually is illustrating is that, you, that you're not driven by economics. What drives what you need is your enemy or your potential enemy. And when you forget that, then you get into big trouble. And, of course, the classic times were 1982 and even more classic pre-1939 when we were so worried about our economy we didn't rearm and look what we ended up with, the Second World War. Just, just personally, when you hear these kind of things in the news, given your experience during the Falklands War, what, what do you think? Oh, here we go again. Or, or is it something that really does concern you? No, I'm not thinking here we go again because I think what's happening is going to prevent the here we go again uh, and, and stop it happening. Uh, at least there is some action being taken which is positive action, which is demonstrating that we mean what we say when we say we'll defend the Falkland Islands. All right, Major General Julian Thompson, thank you very much for your time today. The remains of Richard III have been buried today in Leicester Cathedral, not far from where he died in battle in 1485. Um, Christopher? 
Why should we worry about this? It's a grand occasion, isn't it? I mean, it's the last, apart from the fact that he was the last English king to die in battle, uh, not to lead his troops in battle, the last English king to do that was, was George II. The important thing about this is identification, isn't it? Um, and somehow clearing up in people's minds um, this feeling, was he a bad guy? Because it was Shakespeare who said he was a bad guy, and the Tudors said he was a bad guy. And they said he was crooked, for example, he was a hunchback. And in Tudor language, that meant, if you were a hunchback, that you were evil, therefore you could do something nasty, like killing off the, the, the princes in the tower. But the truth is, there's no evidence for all this. And having got his remains out of the cupboards of of the car park in Leicester, for goodness From sake. From car park to cathedral. Car park to cathedral. It mm. is, it is, having, got his, ha, having got him out and people doing a sort of, almost a sort of uh, an autopsy on him, you know that he wasn't as crooked as, as, as they said he was, but you'll never clear up all the, all the nasties. But some of the good things you can. This is the guy that introduced legal aid, for example. Uh, we know more about him now. He spoke with a Midlands accent. He wasn't the image that Shakespeare gave us uh, 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 mm. at all. Professor Eric Grove, what do you think uh, today's British military can learn from this part of history, from the battles fought back then? Ah, interesting thought. Um, I mean, basically avoid civil wars. They're very nasty. <laughs> uh, make, sh make sure, too, that, uh, uh, th that you have the loyalty of all the people in your armed forces. Because, after all, Richard was betrayed. He didn't die saying, my horse, my uh, horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. He actually said treason, treason, because he had been, had, had been uh, uh, betrayed by Lord Stanley. Um, so, you could, um, could you imagine that happening today? That kind of betrayal, though, within well, Britain's armed forces. Happily not, because we now have a uh, we now have a system and a monarchy which is uh, which is accepted. The whole idea of having two royal factions. Imagine if we had two royal factions today with their own followers <laughs> fighting each other. I can't well, imagine that somehow. Well, exactly, but that's how the situation was in the fifteenth century. Very dangerous time time to be a British king. The English king gets killed in 1485, and three years later, the Scottish king, James III, gets killed too at the Battle of Sockyburn. So being a king in the, in the 1480s in the British Isles hadn't got much of a future to it. Do you know, if you, if you wanted to learn any lessons, I'm not sure you learn them, you're supposed to have learned them somewhere else and far more modern, but you take uh, you know, Eric's point about would you be careful in which wars you go to. So you've got a Hundred Years' War, uh, and how often have we said about, let's say, Iraq, we've talked about Afghanistan, and we say the weakness of this conflict is that we don't know the end game. We haven't decided where we want to do and what's the art strategy. And a perfect example of that was really uh, the Hundred Years' War. Um, and then the Wars of the Roses. Well, you couldn't have an end game there, could the, you? The, Let's the, face it. The, I mean, the Wars of the Roses, sort of, you know, Yorkists and Lancastrians against each other. And when was that all going to end? I just think it's, it's something else, though. If you're in the military, you do have a sense of history, don't you? You have a sense of uh, regimental history, especially in the army. And this, for a lot of people, uh, is part of it. And the other thing, of course, is that something like 75% of the English, of the uh, of, of the of the local, if you like, the indigenous indigenous English, are probably related to the Plantagenets. Mm. Of course, of course, Eric Grove. Um, in terms of the ceremonial side, plenty of troops involved in all of this. Today's right, troops. 
That's right, and quite rightly. I mean, he was killed in a in a battle. Uh, he had his army. Uh, Henry had his army, which actually was was had a, a very large, large number of French mercenaries in it. Actually, we we tend to think, oh, there hasn't been a foreign invasion since 1066. In many ways, uh, Henry Tudor's invasion was a foreign invasion, as indeed William the Third's was in, in 1688. But we tend to sort of say, no, they're sort of a different version of the of the English establishment. But uh, but yes, I mean, it, this was a very militarized time. In in an earlier battle, 1471, the Battle of Tower. A, a very high proportion, remarkably high proportion, of all the English able-bodied men were there, and the casualties okay. were absolutely horrendous. You've that's got right. two seconds, Christopher. Okay, it's rather like having the Fijians, isn't it, in the, in the Black Watch. Now, I'll tell you, the one thing is, um, there are a lot of us who have been at the funeral of a king who died 500 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. That's a quite thought, isn't it? Um, let's look ahead now to the week that's coming. What should be in the diary to look out for on defence, Christopher? It's not in the diary. It is daily looking at what's happening in Yemen because that is a fire that if it burns, it'll burn through the whole of the Middle East. And don't forget, there is, apart from the Americans and wanting to sort things militarily and strategically, this is the centre of world oil. And every nation that's in that fight mm. has either got oil or supplies it to us in another way. And there we must leave it this week. My thanks to you, Professor Eric Grove, and to you, Christopher Lee. Uh, just to let you know that there's a special programme on between 9 o'clock and 10.30 UK time today on BFBS Radio 2. Cameron and Miliband live, the battle for number 10. That's Jeremy Paxson interviewing both David Cameron and Ed Miliband individually, while Sky's Kay Burley will moderate as members of the studio audience put questions the leaders. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.